Uh, our scripture reading today comes from Psalms 139, 13 through 18. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were, were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. This is the word of the Lord. All right, good morning. Let me get set up here really quick. All right. For those of you that might not know me, my name is Mark. I'm one of the elders here at Sola Church. Um, and I want to, uh, what we want to do today, um, and actually before I get into this, let me just, I'm, I'm going to forget if I don't do this right away. We had uh, our family meeting this morning. If you weren't able to be with us, um, we'll, we'll put out a recording as part of our uh, email blast. And then um, if you were curious, we did pass out the 2020 budget. Um, so if you want one of those, um, there's some copies on the back table. Feel free to grab one of those. If you have any questions about it, you are welcome to reach out to any of our elders. Um, we'd love to sit and talk um, um, and explain some of the things like, um, like why is the youth budget up by $3,000? Like there's, um, there's a very specific reason for that. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, it was, it was a great time. Thank you to those uh, that were able to be there. If you weren't, um, uh, there's a recording and then um, there's also some information. Uh, last year, 2019, um, and actually if I back up to 2018, um, we started talking about uh, what are some things that are important that we want to educate our people in, and what are the, what are the best uh, modes for doing that. So we had this long, I mean, it was a long conversation at our elder retreat back in 2018, where we talked about um, what, what is important. We'd, we'd, we'd tried out um, like Sunday school classes. I don't know if you remember those. We did our justice series, and it was great. Um, at the same time, like it was, um, it was just hard to do nine in the morning on a on a Sunday, um, and it um, it was difficult for some people, and um, and we weren't quite reaching um, the the audience that we wanted to reach in, in the way that we wanted to reach them. So we said, uh, okay. This coming year, let's let's have one um, adult equipping focus, um, or actually two adult equipping focuses. Um, and one of them was how to read the Bible. We wanted to make sure that we talked about that um, and that we do that on a fairly regular basis. We'll probably bring that up every other year just to remind ourselves, here's how we actually interpret the Bible. Um, and we did that um, at the beginning of the summer. We did a whole series here in the Sunday session. But then we also looked at it. We said, what are some what are some areas that we that our people need more education? And, and what we found is as we engaged with uh, the vulnerable, the oppressed in our communities, we ran into significant mental health issues that we weren't quite equipped to, to handle, okay? Um, and, and I could give you example after example, I, I don't want to do that, of people who um, had certain expectations when they, were, when they were serving some people and those expectations weren't met. Um, or like, why, why does this person not understand how to budget money? Um, why don't they understand like how... 
you know, to plan for the future, you know, things like that. Um, and we realized that our people just were kind of deficient in understanding how mental health works, how trauma affects it, um, and, and what the end results are, are for that really in extreme cases. Okay. Um, so we, we worked through four sessions, uh, quarterly Wednesdays, we, we met, we started with Carolyn Dunn, we talked about the biology of the brain, uh, we had Lindsay Moore talk to us about poverty in the brain, what poverty does to your brain. Um, we had uh, Megan, who's here with us this morning, is going to speak in just a moment, come and talk to us about the trauma of foster care. Um, and then we finished with uh, Michael Everson, who talked about addiction um, and shared you know how addiction works. Um, and I just wanted to wrap up like a few quick thoughts before Megan comes up um, from those sessions. Some of the things that were most helpful for me um, and and even things that, that we've used, um, the first one being the, uh, the hand model of the brain. Um, any of you remember that from the first session or maybe you've, uh, um, you've been part of like uh, training. If you went through foster training, you probably learned the hand model of the brain. Um, I'm holding a mic so it's going to be kind of, any kiddos want to come up and volunteer, help me out here? Um, and be my brain. All right, Chase, come on up. You're going you're to be my brain for me, okay? So um, I want you to hold your hand up real high, okay? Um, so in the hand model of the brain, if you think of the hand as a brain, let's go ahead and make a fist real quick, okay? This is kind of what your brain looks like. And Megan, help me out if I mess this up, okay? <laughs> Um, you've got like the, the base of the skull back here, the, um, the spinal cord coming up to the brain. And then at uh, the, the base here, like basic, the base of the palm is the, the brain stem. Um, this is like your reptilian brain. This is where some of your fight or flight function comes from, right? I'm looking at me. Okay, good. <laughs> This is where your fight or flight response comes from. Um, and then as your brain develops, um, it develops. I'm going to go open up your hand and I'm going to put your thumb across your palm. Okay, so this thumb is the cerebellum, um, the hippocampus, the amygdala in this area. Um, this is kind of your caveman brain. This is where a lot of your big emotions come from, um, your big feelings. It's sometimes referred to as the downstairs brain. Okay, and then up here is your uh, cerebral cortex, your prefrontal cortex that folds over and a normal brain will develop in a way that the cerebral cortex, that prefrontal cortex um, is governing the downstairs brain and is holding some of those emotions in check um, and is, is acting kind of as a, like a, like a clutch um, to, to help you stop and go and, and control some of those big emotions. All right. So now if you've ever worked with kids, you've been in, and maybe even adults too, um, you've been in situations where that lid is flipped, go ahead and open up your fingers here, where that prefrontal cortex is not governing those big emotions. Okay, so um, so in this situation, your lid is flipped, right? So we do this with our three-year-old. Um, she starts screaming and yelling like, no, you can't have ice cream. And she starts throwing this fit. And it's like, where's your lid? Where's your lid? Okay. And sometimes just like distracting them kind of moves them away. They forget about that big emotion. Um, sometimes they're, they're screaming and, and just like kind of separating them from that situation for even a moment. It's like, hey, do you see anything that's red? And they're like, what? Wait, what? Red? There, you know? Um, and, and, and you would be surprised who this works on, okay? 
so often we get to the point where our prefrontal cortex is not governing those big emotions, that downstairs brain. And what we want, your arm's getting tired, let me help you out. I'll hold it up right here, okay? It's not governing there, and we want to help people to regulate and get it back so that now you're, you're in control of those emotions. But what happens when it's up? Look, go ahead and flip your lid again. Okay. You know what we tend to do when our child is flipping out? Let me give you five reasons why you shouldn't be flipping out right now. Let me rationalize with you. Let me explain. Let me give you a lecture about why this is poor behavior and you shouldn't do this, right? Um, and when they're in this situation, they're not, they're not rationalizing. They're not thinking through. They're not reasoning. Um, they need help getting back to here, back to where their prefrontal cortex is governing those big emotions. And so as we understand, what, what happens with poverty? With poverty, um, you are so concerned with um, like where your next meal is coming from. When you're in that mode of stress and anxiety and fear, sorry, but you're getting tired. You can go, yeah, that, that's probably good enough. Um, thank you, Chase. Um, good job. <clears throat> When you're in that mode where you're full of stress and anxiety, you, you're kind of in this constant state of flipped out, right? And you might not show it with big emotions, but you're not governed by that prefrontal cortex. You actually don't develop the abilities to think towards the future, okay? So we work a lot with, um, with our, our homeless or transient community. And what happens when they finally get a job, um, they, they don't understand budgeting because their life has been spent thinking about today. How am I going to survive today? And they have no training and no skills in how do I think towards my retirement, right? They don't know how to budget because everything they spend is spent on surviving today, right? So when you're, when you're living in a constant state of stress and anxiety, which is um, uh, poverty and homelessness, um, you don't develop those. And, and Carolyn shared with us some of those brain scans where you look at a normal 10-year-old and, and the prefrontal cortex is lit up. And then you take a kid that has struggled with trauma, that has been through foster care, bounced around, um, has impermanence, um, has, has been homeless, um, and their prefrontal cortex is dark. Like there is no activity there, right? Um, so we want to make sure we understand that like the biology of our brain is affected um, by the trauma that we experience, um, by the community that surrounds us. One of the biggest ideas that I, I want to take out of um, some of our mental health series, um, when we talked about poverty, we talked about mental models. You remember that? We took those big pieces of paper. We talked about what, what is a normal mental model um, for you where you're at? Um, and it included like all of these different things like, you know, bills to pay and school and parenthood and vacations and um, celebrations. And, and like there's these, these normal American dream type things that occupy a lot of us um, and then step away into a position of poverty. What is it that occupies your mind? Um, and, and a lot of times it's, it's just basic survival. How do, I, um, how do I survive the next day? How do I pay the next bill? Um, how do I avoid getting evicted? Um, and one of the biggest um, ways to alleviate poverty isn't just to give people money. It's to offer people community and support. 
right? Um, when we talk about foster care, uh, the biggest reason that kids end up in foster care is because you have families that lack a support system around them, okay? So, so for example, if, if something were to happen with me and Chas, um, for whatever reason, and our kids got picked up by the system, um, I have family in town, um, that would gladly take them and cause little to no disruption in their lives. Um, I've got, you know, an MC. I've got a church community. Um, I could probably list out about 20 different families um, that would step up and take my kids right now, right? Um, if a kid ends up being placed in foster care with strangers, that means that that family lacked the support around them to be able to transition that kid in a way that's not disruptive. Do you see that? Okay, so one of the things that we want to do as we engage with foster care isn't just to think about taking care of kids, it's about taking care of families and offering them resources and support. And the reality is that when we come to an understanding of how our, our brain works, how our mind works, how mental illness works, is that we were made for community. We were made for connection. And everybody will tell you, like I, um, Chas and I do, um, do training uh, for the county. Um, and this is, this is the government, right? This is not a religious organization. This is not Project 127 that we're training for. We go with the county. And you know what you, you, know what you find when you read child psychology books? And, and I've, I've really enjoyed digging into that over and over. It's all about we need community around us to help us um, as, we, as we develop as humans, um, as we raise children. I was reading um, uh, one of my favorite books, The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Uh, I, I told my kids about this book, and every once in a while they'll be like, Dad, tell us another story from The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog. Fascinating book. But you know what they say? Um, what the author, Bruce uh, Perry, says, I would definitely encourage you. To, it's fascinating. These ideas contradict the fundamental. He's, he's talking about um, the understanding of the brain in the 70s, 80s, 90s, um, where it was a lot about self-actualization. It was a lot about individualism. And he's saying these ideas, these individualistic ideas, actually contradict the fundamental biology of human species. We are social mammals. This is, this is not a Christian saying this. Let me, let me make sure you're clear on that. We are social mammals that can never have survived without deeply interconnected and interdependent human contact. The truth is, you cannot love yourself unless you have been loved and are loved. Does that sound familiar? We love him because what? He first loved us. Your capacity to love comes from the fact that you are loved. And if you never feel that love, you lack the capacity to actually love. This is secular psychology. The capacity to love cannot be built in isolation. It can't. We need to understand that we have, and so this is from the secular perspective, we evolve to need and then work on ways to provide those things in the modern world. We evolved to need community around us. We, as believers, we understand we were created in the image of God to be relational beings. For a secular psychologist, he would say, there's something about our built-in nature, and it must be that we evolved this way. We evolved to need community. We come along and say, actually, God created us as relational beings. And we, um, it is not good for a man to be alone. That doesn't mean you need to get married. That's not, it's not talking about marriage. It's saying man is a relational being and we need each other to be complete. 
Policymakers imagine that nuclear families epitomize the golden age, but in terms of the deep history of the human family, it's unusual for children to be reared only by their mothers and fathers. Children accustomed to nurturing from others view their social world as a benign place and act accordingly. It is not normal for you to try to raise your kids by yourself. That is something new and modern, and it's not, it's not good. History tells, like, like he, he talks about um, one of the recent trends in modern history, and this will probably blow your mind, is kids, um, infants, newborns, um, that grow up and sleep out of sight of their parents and not even in the same bed anymore. Like over the course of human history, it was normal for an infant to be in the same room and most often in the same bed, developing that kind of connection. He's like, I don't know what it's gonna look like now. I mean, and in his mind, he's like, we'll probably evolve over eons to, to, to mitigate those effects. But right now, like you were made for connection. Um, and Bruce Perry, a secular psychologist, is trying to tell you that. Daniel Siegel, um, you should read The Whole Brain Child by Daniel Siegel. Um, fantastic book. Um, for full emotional communication, one person needs to allow his state of mind to be influenced by that of the other. You cannot be a healthy person without deep, vulnerable interaction with other people. Um, Kurt Thompson is coming from a, uh, a, a Christian perspective in The Soul of Shame, and he talks about the, the way that we conquer shame is through vulnerability. Um, our vulnerability reminds us that deep relationship is the norm, is what should be normal. It's not something we periodically require when we're in trouble or lonely. And this neurobiology of we reflects God's intention for our created purpose from the beginning. Let me tell you, Sola Church, um, the way that we do church here with our missional community environment where we push you into family relationships together, it's not a church growth strategy. There are much better church growth strategies, okay? We actually believe that this is the best path to human flourishing based on how God created us, okay? And guess what? Secular psychologists agree with us. But that deep vulnerability very often scares people because we feel that shame, right? We, feel, we, we fear rejection and we're used to being rejected. And so we fear actually being vulnerable. Okay, so what we want to do now, um, our mental health series was a lot of, um, and I've, I've gone too long, but our mental health series, um, as, as we planned it out, it was very much like, um, how do we prepare to deal with other people who have these problems. Um, and one of the mistakes that we made as we developed it is we didn't consider what are the mental health issues that we ourselves have, okay? Um, like we, we are all corrupted and broken by the fall and we all struggle in different ways. And, um, and so I wanted to bring in Megan Magel and I asked her to come and talk about um, a couple specific areas that are fairly common um, to most of us. Um, and those areas are, are depression and anxiety. Um, how do we deal um, with that? Um, how does vulnerability um, help us to mitigate that? And then how do we move forward and continue to design environments that press into vulnerability and help us 
us to um, to overcome some of those things. So um, Megan Magel is a counselor with All Health. Um, we met her through her work with Project 127 when she was a caseworker there. Um, she's done training sessions for for us for our body. Um, honestly, when we have like a mental health issue to address, like we had a safe bodies training we needed to do because of a um, an incident at, that happened at day camp. Uh, Megan's the one that we call, and she's been uh, just a blessing to our body. So I'm going to invite Megan to come up um, and share with us. All right. Well, thank you. Um, I always love coming, so I'm so glad that Mark has me on the list of people to call uh, because it's just an absolute joy every single time I get to come and spend time with you all. I've gotten to know some of you um, over the past couple of years, and it's just it's been great. And I have to say, too, that I am over the moon thrilled, and I've told Mark this, the way that SOLA engages mental health and taking a look at how we are impacted by trauma and mental health issues and poverty, all of these different things that I don't see a ton of churches engaging these topics, and I think it's a huge loss to our, our larger church body, our communities. And so I'm just so thankful that, that this is a priority to SOLA, um, and even enough so that you would have me come and talk with you all on a Saturday morning. I'm very honored. So as, as Mark said, I, I think that it's important for us to think that with mental health issues, we're not talking about them, okay? So we're gonna get rid of the term them this morning and we're gonna think about us. Because when we're considering mental health, we all have mental health. It's not just for people who are maybe, you know, talking to themselves downtown. Th those aren't just the people with mental health. We all have mental health. It's just where are we at in terms of that health? How are we able to manage it, okay? So as we're talking about it this morning, we're going to be thinking about then the spectrum. of Where am I at? How is my mental health? And how are things going with me? And what are some different things that I can do, um, ways that I can reach out to the Lord and, and navigate these challenges that I have? So I am going to talk about a couple of different types of mental health um, you know, diagnoses. And, and again, it's a spectrum, so we can fall on, on that as well without receiving a diagnosis. I had considered doing a PowerPoint presentation, but I thought, we can just have a conversation, right? And so if you're a note taker, um, I apologize that you don't have something more scripted, but I did want this to just feel more like a conversation than um, some kind of lecture for you. So the most prevalent diagnoses we talk about um, you know, are the anxiety, depression. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about post-traumatic stress disorder and also postpartum, uh, because I think that that's another really pertinent uh, thing that people struggle with that we don't give enough attention to. But as we talk about diagnosis, what that means really is that your experience with anxiety, depression, postpartum, post-traumatic stress disorder, bipolar disorder, whatever those things may be, is that they're actually impacting your, ab your ability to do daily life functioning, okay? So at that point, you might look into receiving a diagnosis. If you're unable to get out of bed, if there's days that go by and you feel like, I can't, I just can't. I can't get out of bed. I can't go to work. I don't enjoy spending time with my family. I don't enjoy doing the things that I've always liked to do. That you're maybe sleeping more than you used to. You're eating more than you used to or less. You're eating less than you used to, sleeping less than you used to. Whatever those might be, if that's getting to a point where that's preventing you from doing your everyday life, or it's hurting your relationships. You're not reaching out, you're isolating yourself, um, and you're not able to participate as you normally would. Then at that point, you really look into whether or not this is something that is a diagnosis that might need some more intensive treatment. 
And so I want you to just consider that, but then also think that there are times where we experience anxiety and depression and may not be diagnosed with those things. And so that pertains to all of you, okay? I know you're a wonderful group of people, but I'm guessing that all of you at some point have experienced some form of anxiety and or depression or some of these other things that we'll talk about, okay? And so because of that, it's really important that we are able to talk about it in a church setting. And we're gonna go into more detail about that. But starting with depression, as we've already talked about, I think that uh, for some people, and, and, I, and this was said well earlier too, is that we think that psychology is kind of this outer realm, right? That this is the science, it's not necessarily biblical. Um, so as somebody who desired from the age of, you know, 15, 16 in high school to be a Christian counselor, you know, I went to seminary. So I can tell you that this is, actually does integrate really well with the Bible that um, a lot of these things that secular scientists are figuring out have some strong basis in the word. And so we're able to figure out then how we can use the word to help us learn more about ourselves and how we can continue to seek holistic wholeness and wellness in our lives with the Lord. So if you'd like to go to Psalm 13, I don't know if you have your, your Bibles or your smartphones where you look up these verses, but I just think that this is a perfect example of how we can see these issues with mental health that we're wrestling with, uh, that folks throughout the Bible have dealt with these things and talk about them openly. So Psalm 13 is a Psalm of David, and he says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, O Lord my God. Give light to my eyes, or I will sleep in death. My enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. That sounds like depression to me, <laughs> right? That sounds like a very painful place of calling out and saying, I don't have joy. I don't have a sense of peace in my life. I'm overwhelmed. I'm scared. I feel far from the Lord, all right? So that, to me, is a perfect picture of what anxiety, or excuse me, what depression can feel like when you feel unable to get out of this deep, dark pit. Anxiety is something, again, that a lot of people reference, right? Most people have felt anxious at some point and are able to acknowledge. Maybe that one's a little more um, you know, positive to say that, oh, I struggle with anxiety. It's harder to acknowledge maybe that you deal with depression, um, but you're able to say that, yeah, I, you know, I, I get anxious, I struggle with anxiety, especially in our culture that's so fast-paced and we've got so many things that we're trying to balance and, and take care of, and so anxiety is something that, that kind of fuels us, right, that kind of makes us go forward and, and do these things we have to do. It can amp us up to where we're, we're constantly trying to get things done because we're feeling anxious. We know that it has to happen. We just came out of the holiday season, so it's probably a pretty fresh feeling to you trying to manage all of those different things. But then it can also lead us to avoid things. Maybe you feel anxious about doing a particular task or a particular relationship, and so you're going to avoid that as much as you possibly can because of those feelings of anxiety um, that you have. And so I'm sure that you felt that feeling of anxiety but just to kind of describe it a little bit more, you know, as Mark was showing that this demonstration of the brain, a lot of times when we're feeling anxious is when we're ramping up, right? When we're starting to feel our blood pressure go up, our heart rate go up, and we're feeling panicked because of some kind of threat to our situation. Maybe it's not because we're dealing with, you know, 
bears chasing us or you know different things that maybe people in, um, in earlier times had to be concerned about so it's not this life threatening thing at the same time but it is going against our expectations maybe we have some expectations that we're, we're going to be taking a test or we're going to be needing to present something at work and, and what's going to happen in that situation am I going to do well and people are going to like me and think better of me or am I going to do poorly and then people will judge me all of these different things that those can lead us to that state of anxiety as well um, and, and feeling kind of that panic within ourselves. And so we may try to avoid situations that make us feel like that. And the Bible actually references anxiety, this specific word, at least seven times. All right, that was just in the NIV translation. So, you know, it, it may be bigger with some others. But there's definitely other times where anxiety is referenced. I mean, Jesus himself was sweating blood. That's how intense his anxiety was in that moment. And I think you could see throughout that whole, uh, you know, kind of ending time towards his life that he knew it was coming and that he was experiencing this feeling like, take this from me. This is too much. This is too heavy for me to bear. And I don't know how I'm going to do this. I have to have you helping me with that. Proverbs 12, 25 talks about anxiety weighing down the heart. Psalm 94, 19 talks about the anxiety is great within me. So again, all of these things that we're experiencing that we sometimes try to maybe minimize, but we can acknowledge the fact that the word talks about it, the word acknowledges it, addresses it, and so we can allow ourselves to experience those things and, and work through those things in a, in a vulnerable way. Philippians, you're probably familiar with this passage. In Philippians 4, 6, it says, Do not be anxious about anything, but by prayer and petition, submit your request to God, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So I think a lot of times when people hear this verse, they camp out on, do not be anxious about anything. We need to pray. We're anxious. We need to pray. And, and so I think an important point to talk about as we're here this morning as a body is, is that we do need to pray, and we do need to trust the Lord for what he's going to do, but we, we can't minimize the intensity of what we're experiencing in our, in our emotions, in our thought life, and that kind of thing. And so that's why the, actually my favorite part of the ver verse is, and peace which passes all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. Because I don't know about you all, but sometimes I'm in situations where there's no way I should have peace. There's like absolutely no way I should have peace. Everything feels like chaos around me. Things are falling apart. There's no reason to have peace. And nothing in my body feels peaceful. I'm just like a mess of emotion, of stress, of frustration. But the fact is, is that in that, God is able to step in and bring peace that passes all understanding. That's the powerful part of the verse to me, is that he's able to do that. But again, not to minimize the significance of our holistic self, right? So again, we can pray and submit that to God, but just like Mark said, we've got brains, y'all, right? And so things are going to be going on inside of our brains. We may have a deficit in some of our neurotransmitters that help us with being able to calm down or help us with feeling uh, good about different situations. And so we have to attend to that. As much as we need to go to the Lord in prayer and go to our communities for support, we also need to attend to the fact that he's given us these human bodies that we can also use different interventions and strategies to help us with navigating those different challenges that we have. 
okay? And I think that that's a really, really important thing to think about because I think it gets minimized in the church a lot, and we'll continue to, to talk about that in just a little bit. So just to hit on postpartum, um, for, for women who um, give birth, that again, we're looking at the holistic self, that that does some real wreckage to your body. I mean, I have to tell you, like, I have a five-year-old son, I went through it, and I think that women, it's hard sometimes to acknowledge that they're experiencing an heightened increase in depression and anxiety because we're Christians. We want to be able to do these things well, right? We want to do them with grace. We want other people to see us as an example of how resilient we are because of the Lord. Um, that's kind of what we feel like we have to do sometimes. And so I think the reason I, I felt like it was important to mention is that this is something that often happens, is that women experience increased anxiety and depression after giving birth. And it's okay to tell people that, that you're not really happy to be at home cuddling your baby all day, okay? That might not be reality for you, and that's fine, and you can say that, okay? And we're going to be talking about creating that safe place to be able to have those conversations. The last one I want to um, kind of hit on before we, we talk about some other big picture stuff is um, post-traumatic stress disorder, okay? And so when we think of post-traumatic stress disorder, we probably think of some of these things that we referenced, right? We think of extreme poverty situations. We think of um, maybe a situation of abuse or severe neglect. We think of maybe kids who've experienced that as well, um, kids who maybe needed to go into the foster care system. But I kind of want to expand that because I think that the definition of trauma um, can sometimes make some of us who haven't experienced something kind of catastrophic think that we, have, we don't have trauma in our lives. And so again, it becomes a them issue as opposed to us looking at ourselves and saying, well, what are the things that are actually, that have happened in my life that have really impacted me to where it's still altering the way that I see and view the world, okay? So you may not have a technical PTSD diagnosis for some of the hard things that you've been through in your life, okay? You may not be having flashbacks or you know traumatic nightmares that kind of thing but I, I see people all of the time as a therapist who come in and they're experiencing traumatic responses to what's going on around them okay so maybe a strained relationship with a parent they're experiencing kind of a similar dynamic in the workplace and their whole body is reacting to it so they're becoming you know angry and they're unable to have a conversation with this boss and and all of these different things and it's because it's a trauma response. They're reacting to something that they experienced before, okay? And I think that that's really important for us to notice because sometimes our reactions don't seem to make sense in the context of our situations. Have you ever felt that way? Where something little happens and you're actually really reacting to it? And a, and a lot of times that can come from some kind of trauma response. That we're not looking at what was the ob objective event, all right? And whether or not we deem that as that should be something traumatic or not. We're looking at how did this situation impact you and how is it continuing to impact you throughout your life to where it's getting in the way of some of your relationships or things that you need to be doing. Um, so I, I want to make sure that people continue to think about how these things in your life that maybe don't seem like a big deal, they are actually kind of instances of trauma for you to attend to and, and be aware of. 
So I wanted to switch gears a little bit and talk a little bit about how do we then deal with this stuff. If we're all experiencing anxiety, if we all experience depression um, in some way, shape, or form on the spectrum, um, if we've experienced trauma, all of these things, well, what are we supposed to do about it? Well, I only have a few minutes, so we can't get into the ins and outs of all of your life experiences. But um, I do want to tell you about one specific model that, um, that I used to find extremely helpful, and it's ca called the cognitive behavioral therapy. And what it is, is it looks at what are our thoughts, what are our feelings, and then what are our behaviors that come because of our thoughts and feelings, all right? And so when you break this down, you're thinking about what are those initial things that I think, okay? What are the things I tell myself? I'm not good enough, all right? I'm in a situation with, um, with a friend where they're not reaching out to me to invite me to do things with them, invite me over for dinner or whatever. And so what do I think in my head? I think I'm not, I think I'm not good enough. I'm not enjoyable to be around. And so my feeling for that then becomes like shame and embarrassment and feeling unlovable. And so then because of that, I'm going to be distant to my friend and I'm going to try to put space between us and not talk to them as often, all right? That's just one example of how we can be affected in our behaviors and our relationships by those thoughts and feelings. And, excuse me, and, and the important thing about this to be aware of is that this process goes so fast. I mean, especially when I'm talking to my teenage clients and they're talking about, well, I got mad and so then I, you know, cussed out my parent. Like, okay, let's slow this down a little bit. <laughs> you know, like, let's actually take a look, let's take a step back and see what was the actual process. And so you can do that and try to figure out, okay, what was the initial situation? What were your, your feelings about that situation? What were your thoughts? What were you telling yourself in that moment that led to this behavior? And, and so as we were talking about with the brain, and I was actually going to do that, so I'm glad that, that Mark covered that so I didn't have to slump through the, the brain analogy and metaphor. Um, but we try to slow down that process by being more mindful. Um, and I, I don't know about you, but as a Christian, when I hear mindfulness, sometimes I think of like woo-woo, right? Like I think that I'm conservative Baptist, how I grew up. So it's like, ooh, you know, this is getting a little freaky. But um, what we're talking about, we're talking about mindfulness is just paying more attention to our thinking and feeling. What is the process that we're going through and paying more attention to that. And in order to be able to regulate ourselves, we need to be able to more slowly go through that process. Okay, that we need to first try to regulate ourselves, calm ourselves down. So as a therapist, of course, like there's a lot of different things, a lot of different tools that I talk to people to use about calming down. Well, um, I'm going to be demonstrating vulnerability today. Okay, I'm going to be providing some um, some of some of my challenges. Uh, but just to say that you know there was a night um, a few months ago where I was just I woke up in the night and I was just dysregulated. I was anxious. I just felt really um, disturbed. I couldn't sleep. I think I was shaky. And so I was like, okay, I'm going to start working through this toolbox that I'm always telling people to do, right? So I'm thinking through breathing exercises. That's not working. Um, I'm trying to do some, I like pulled up an app on my phone where there's like a guided meditation where they're kind of like, you know, you're at a beach. I'm not, you know, I can't ever do those. So I always use my app because it's just so cheesy when I'm trying to like imagine yourself. You know, like I don't, I don't do that voice very well. 
So, um, so I'm doing these different things, and so then I pull out like my coloring book, and I've got this coloring book for adults, and it's got scripture verses in it. And so I start coloring, and I turn on you know one of my favorite worship songs that I have kind of on my list right now, and that's actually what helped me regulate. That's actually what helped me to calm down from this like panic state that I was in, enough to be able to figure out what am I freaking out about right now? What is actually going on inside of my head that is leading me to feel this way? Because there actually is a thought, you know, like I'm out there, I'm, I, I'm, I'm doing these things, I'm scared, I don't know what's going to happen, I don't know what the future holds, I don't feel like I'm in control. All of these different thoughts I'm having, like, oh yeah, that led to this feeling, okay? And so I'm able to kind of intervene, go back and intervene and calm myself down in that process. And then as I'm able to identify what those thoughts and feelings are, then I can surrender those to the Lord, right? When I'm in that state of chaos, I don't even know what to surrender, so I'm regulating myself to say, okay, God, I know this isn't true. I know that you are so faithful to me and that you have my back and I can give that to you right now. And, um, and so that's how he's able, able to use that. And again, tying back into how I, how I really believe and see that, that the Lord um, is using some of these different things in, in, in therapy is we, you know, we go to, to 2 Corinthians 10.5 and I know that you all know this verse is that we demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ, right? And that's, that's from Scripture, and that's exactly what I'm talking about today, is paying attention to what we're thinking and feeling in order to be able to surrender that to the Lord, right? So what does it feel like to struggle? Maybe you don't know. Right? So I thought I would share with you a little bit of what it feels like to struggle so you can have a better idea because maybe you all have it together and I don't. So um, if you would be willing to pull up the quote that, we, that I have for you. I don't know if you've heard this before. Um, how many of you have heard of Brene Brown? Okay, so she's um, like my bestie. She doesn't know it, but um, we're very close, and she likes what I have to say too. Um, I don't. I mean, I probably shouldn't even say that. But um, but anyway, so she uses this quote. She has actually a Netflix special that I really recommend you you watching. Um, I would recommend that you read her books, but I know that that's less likely for folks. So that's why it's great to refer people to a Netflix uh, Netflix special. Um, but I want to read this quote to you because I think that this really demonstrates a lot of how it feels, what the experience is like to struggle in some way with anxiety, depression, um, trauma, postpartum, whatever it might be, bipolar disorder, and try to be vulnerable in that process. So the quote is from Theodore Roosevelt, and it's, it's called Man in the Arena. It's not the critic who counts, not the man who points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to the man or woman who is actually in the arena, who is face, what is this? Oh, is, whose face is marred by dust and sweat and blood, who strives valiantly, who errs, who comes up short again and again because there is no effort without error and shortcoming. But who does actually strive to do the deeds? Who knows great enthusiasms, the great devotions, who spends himself in a worthy cause? Who knows at best, who at best knows in the end the triumph of high achievement, and who at the worst, if he fails, at least fails while daring greatly, so that his place shall never be with those cold and timid souls who never know victory nor defeat. 
And so as we experience struggles with anxiety, with depression, we feel like we are down on the ground in the arena. We're face down, we're sweaty, we're bloody, and sometimes it feels like other people are watching us, right? And so I want to encourage you, if you feel like you are in the arena, I want you to know that you're not alone down there and that you're brave for showing other people that you're struggling because that is going to do so much more for you and the plans that the Lord has for you than if you pretend like there's nothing going on. Okay? If you pretend like your life is pulled together, you have it all together, you are not going to be able to experience the fullness of what God has for you. And you're not going to be able to share with other people who are in broken places in the same way. As if you are in the arena, face down, vulnerable, willing to acknowledge that you don't have it all together. And I have to tell you, it was another night. Um, this past year has been one of the hardest years of my life. And um, there was one night where I was um, home and I was thinking and I was alone and I, I had this picture of being in the arena. And um, it was very clear. And I was, I was face down. My eyes were swollen from being hurt. I was sweaty. I was bloody. But you know what? My head was on Jesus' lap, and he was petting my hair. <laughs> and he was stroking my hair because he was with me in that brokenness. And he was giving me grace and freedom and love. And he was there in that with absolutely no judgment. He wasn't telling me, just pray. Just pray, Megan, and you'll be fine. He wasn't doing that. He was holding me. And he was sitting in that with me. And I think that that is, um, is really the way that, that we can move forward in our, in our pain and our suffering as we're experiencing these different things. Is not to say, okay, I need to snap out of this. My internal voice is telling me, let's put on your you know, big girl pants and get out there. You know? like, that's not what my internal voice is telling me. My, my internal voice is telling me, Megan, you're chosen. I love you. I'm here with you. We can do this. Okay? And so there's no reason to be ashamed if that's where you're at today. If you can tap into those feelings of being depressed, being anxious, um, reliving some experiences that you've had in your life that are hard, that there's no shame in that. Absolutely none. And that our church needs to be that place of vulnerability. We don't want to be the people that are looking around from the arena, right? When we know that there is a brother or sister, just like the way we're down there, we don't want other people in our church body looking down at us and judging us and critiquing us, right? We think of Job and the situations that he went through in his life and how all of these friends were saying, you need to do this, you need to do that. This is what God is saying. Telling you all of these things, that we don't want to be that for each other, right? We want to be where Jesus is. We want to be down in the arena with those other people that are going through hard things, just like we want them to be with us when we're down there, right? 
And so I, I wanted to just show you too, and, you know, as we're talking about our dear Brene Brown, um, she made a, a little short video that talks about the difference between empathy and sympathy. And I think that the, this is a great demonstration of how we can be joining with people when they're in a dark place. How do we as believers, when we feel like, you know, well, I know the Bible verse that would really, really help you with that, you know, or I know exactly what you need to do. You need to surrender right now in this moment. That um, we also need to be thinking, how can we step into this with this person instead of just giving them um, an answer? How can we step into what they're experiencing and really journey alongside them? So that's what this video will um, give some words to. So what is empathy and why is it very different than sympathy? Empathy fuels connection. Sympathy drives disconnection. Empathy, it's very interesting. Teresa Wiseman is a nursing scholar who studied professions, very diverse professions where empathy is relevant and came up with four qualities of empathy. Perspective taking, the ability to take the perspective of another person or, or recognize their perspective as their truth. Staying out of judgment, not easy when you enjoy it as much as most of us do. <laughs> Recognizing emotion in other people and then communicating that. Empathy is feeling with people. And to me, I always think of empathy as this kind of sacred space when someone's kind of in a deep hole and they shout out from the bottom and they say, I'm stuck, it's dark, I'm overwhelmed. And then we look and we say, hey, and climb down. I know what it's like down here, and you're not alone. Sympathy is, ooh, it's bad, uh-huh. Uh, no, you want a sandwich? Um, empathy is a choice, and it's a vulnerable choice, because in order to connect with you, I have to connect with something in myself that knows that feeling. Rarely, if ever, does an empathic response begin with at least. I had a, yeah. And we do it all the time. Because you know what? Someone just shared something with us that's incredibly painful, and we're trying to silver lining it. I don't think that's a verb, but I'm using it as one. We're trying to put the silver lining around it. So I had a miscarriage. Oh, at least you know you can get pregnant. I think my marriage is falling apart. At least you have a marriage. <laughs> John's getting kicked out of school. At least Sarah is an A student. But one of the things we do sometimes in the face of very difficult conversations is we try to make things better. If I share something with you that's very difficult, I'd rather you say, I don't even know what to say right now. I'm just so glad you told me. Because the truth is, rarely can a response make something better. What makes something better is connection. So that last line is that it's not a response that makes something better, that it's a connection, right? And that's the way that God's wired us, is to be in that close connection with others. And so that's why we need to be focusing on that um, and that empathy and being able to journey with people more than what am I going to say? 
If I get together with her for coffee, what am I going to say? I need to figure this out. It's about connection, right? There's a, there's a book, um, if you'd like to write the, the title down, it's called Don't Sing Songs to a Heavy Heart. It's by Kenneth Hawk. Um, his last name is spelled H-A-U-G-K. Sometimes Hawk, Hawkalugi, I don't know. <laughs> it's not my last name. Um, but I think that it's a helpful it's book. It's by Stephen's Ministries. And it's to be able to figure out, as believers, how do we walk alongside someone and be able to encourage them in the Lord and support them, um, but also not be kind of this figure that's patronizing and not really stepping into what it is that they're experiencing. How can I really be that kind of support that I want to be for folks? And so I think that book is a great resource to be able to do that. Um, and, you know, and just kind of as I tie things up, I don't know how many of you have heard of the ministry Celebrate Recovery? Okay. So it's, it's kind of like a Christian AA, um, but it is just looking at what are some different habits, life hang-ups, um, struggles that you may have in your life. So it's not specifically for people who have addiction. Obviously, it addresses that, but it kind of looks at some of these other bigger challenges that people might have. And it's a community then where people are very open and just communicating, I don't have it all together. This is my problem. And they're coming alongside each other <clears throat> to work through that. Isn't that church? I mean, to me, whenever I, I think about Celebrate Recovery and they share about what's going on there and this special ministry, I'm like, that should be exactly what church is. That we're walking in and we're not acting like our Instagram feed, right? That we're walking in and we're, we're acknowledging, I don't have it all together. This was an awful week, right? And this is why it was an awful week. And I would really benefit from, you know, like if we could get together, that would be great and just kind of talk through some of that stuff. That's exactly what it is that we need. Um, and so I, I'm thankful for your community. I know um, that that's really a model that you all value. And I think that that's incredible and powerful. So I'm really thankful for, for all the work that you all have done to establish this place. So that's kind of what I have. I know that we are going to do some question answers. I think that's kind of what Mark was thinking. So um, Yeah. Well, first off, thank you, Megan. That was, yeah. that was excellent. It was... Um, we talk about gospel as good news, um, and I hope this was good. You heard this as good news, um, just scripture soaked. Here's where we're all at, and um, uh, here's where, where we're going together. So, does anybody have any questions, any follow up um, before we finish up? Toth? This may just be super practical, but there may not be a good answer to it. Um, I guess I'm just wondering, like, when I myself have struggles with anxiety and I can mm -hmm. feel that fight or flight response. Like, I tend to fight when people are trying to help me, and it's been really humbling for me because I am Mr. Fix-It, and I really struggle to not just impart my advice on everyone. Mm -hmm. Point of that being, when I see someone else struggling, how do you try to recognize, you know, when it is, like, not time to be offering those solutions? Like, there may be a time that you can get to that, but like what I heard you saying and what I've experienced myself is they need to calm down first. The prefrontal cortex needs to be doing its job, but how do you recognize that in mm -hmm. another person? Because it's almost impossible to even see it in yourself. Yeah, right. 
And I think that kind of goes back to this whole mindfulness concept as well, right? That maybe uh, as somebody who's coming alongside as a friend, we're starting to already think in our minds like, okay, they're, they're panicked. So what, do I, what can I do to solve this situation? What do I need to step in and do, okay? So already, you, okay, you need to start regulating yourself, right? Um, and co-regulation is a real thing. Uh, the, the more calm you are, the more calm the people around you are going to be. That's why when I teach parenting, I'm like, this isn't about your kids today. This is about you needing to figure out how to regulate yourself. Because the more you're able to be calm in that moment, the more likely you're going to be able to pull other people into that, that calm space, into that peace. So I think that that's probably the first thing is kind of like check your own emotions, right? Um, and then the second thing is I, I think hearing them out. And, and again, this is really a practice of, the, you know, the term is called attunement, being really present and, and taking note of what's going on around you. Because you're going to try to need to know in that moment, if I ask them a question, are they going to respond to it or do they need to emote? If I ask them a question, are they, um, are they going to want to share about all of these details or are they wanting to talk about the feeling behind what's going on? All right, so it's really kind of following their lead in that. And then we talked about this whole idea of regulate, that that's the first thing, is that first we gotta work on our bodies because our, our sympathetic nervous systems are in crisis mode. So we need to bring that down first, okay? And you can do that by being calm next to them. You can do that by doing rhythmic movements. You could go for a walk together. That's extremely calming for people. Okay, um, even just getting up and walking around. Well, let's just go get a drink. You know, getting them something to drink. Um, whenever you're able to kind of do something to to help. You know, Mark was talking about distract your body a little bit to kind of bring things back online. Um, then I think that that's a great way to do that. And then the second one after regulate is relate. So in that situation, that's when you're attending to what's going on with them. You're trying to figure out. Okay, are they in the mood to talk about this? Am I just sitting with them and their feelings? And I'm not looking at my watch, right? And that's the hard part, because that's what we do <laughs> in our culture. It's about, it's about timing, right? We don't know what that's going to look like. But as they talked about in this, in this little short film, that it's not about the response that you have either. It's about the connection that you can say, I can see why this is really hard. Like, I'm frustrated for you. You know, like, I, I cried with a client the other day because I'm like, that situation that you were in makes me feel, I feel so sad that you were in that situation, right? That we're acknowledging the things that they've been through and we're trying to tap into that into ourselves so that we can sit with them in that and we can have some semblance like you're saying, what would I want in this moment, right? What's helpful for me? Is it helpful for me for somebody to, to pray with me, to kind of put their arms around me and, and pray with me? That can be incredibly helpful. Um, or it could be a situation where you're like, let's go for a walk. I'll, you know, I'll take you to go walk around the park, whatever it might be. So I think, you know, I, I know that's kind of a general answer, but it's really that practice of uh, relating, regulating, and then at that point, reasoning, if that's something that they seem to be interested in doing when you start asking those kinds of questions. And I think that, that idea of asking those questions is important, too, because a lot of times we want to, once we get to that phase, we want to offer the solution. And it's almost always better if the solution arises from them themselves, you know, where you're able to ask good questions so they can realize where they're at and they can come up with a solution rather than you, you know, putting it on them. 
I have a really good example of that. Um, when we lost our son uh, years ago, we had many people reach out to us um, and uh, receive many, many cards of sympathy. There was one card from a friend, instead of saying, we're so sorry, and I mean, not that that doesn't mean something, it certainly does, but this one friend said, you must feel so battered and bruised. Mm -hmm. That card was, it resonated in my heart. It's like, somebody knows how I feel. That little comment, I mean, it was huge. Mm -hmm. Somebody identified with how I felt. Mm -hmm. um, so this, what you're saying, all these things are very, very true. Thank you. Well, and what a beautiful example of community and that connection, right? That they're stepping into that pain and they said, I felt that too. And then it just is like a, a relief, you know? Somebody understands me, you know? And that's because God created us for connection. That that means so much and that has such a healing component for us. Yeah. Thank you. Take one more. I liked, well, just a comment. I, I've appreciated just how you've connected so much of the work. You know, Brene Brown isn't necessarily a professing, professing Christian, but there is so much truth in what she says. And I'm just, I'm curious from the video, the, the bear's ability to go down into the hole, I think has to do with the work that the bear had done on his own, being able to connect with his own emotion. I'm wondering if you could speak to just the work of owning our stories so that we can walk into the stories of others. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I think that's where it begins and ends with vulnerability, right? Because the more we're able to acknowledge the things that we've gone through and how they've been hard for us, the more willing we are to step in with other people. Because when we haven't acknowledged or allowed ourselves to kind of go through that work to be able to say, I don't have it all together. <laughs> and I need to try to figure out what is it that I'm telling myself? What are the lies that I'm believing about myself? How have I allowed that to govern my, my beliefs and my behaviors, how I treat other people? If we haven't thought those vulnerable things ourselves, it is going to be harder for us to step in with other folks because we're going to feel uncomfortable with it, right? And, um, and, and we can see that. Maybe you're thinking of specific examples. Um, I know that I am, where you, know, you, you feel that disconnect with somebody, and it's, it almost feels like you know, judgment or disapproval or whatever. And I, and I have really had to come to this place where it's not because they're a bad person. It's not because they have any intention of not being loving, not being kind, but because they don't know how to step into that that it's hard for them to look at their own stuff and own it. And so it makes it harder for them to do that with us. So I, I think that that's a great point. So if there's somebody in your life that you don't feel like is stepping into those hard places with you, that you have to understand that it might not be because they don't love you and they don't want to be there for you, that they just don't know how, right? Well, at this time, I just want to be reminded that um, Jesus was the, the bear that crawled into the pit um, alongside us, right? And like Megan said, he's not in the stands. Um, we don't have a Savior that is 
watching from on high and just um, just a casual observer, um, he stepped into the arena um, and he he was broken and he was so terrified of it, like Megan said, um, that he suffered anxiety and sweat like it were great drops of blood um, as he saw what was coming and he did it for us and he gave us a reminder that we, um, we practice every Sunday to remind ourselves um, that what we are going through, Jesus himself suffered, um, and he is there with us in our suffering. So um, let's say our call to communion together, and we'll go back and we'll take uh, the bread and the cup.